Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Hi, everyone. Elaine and Diane here. And we know that you want your complex kids to grow up to be happy and independent. And yet you're not always sure how or when to help with that. In this podcast, we'll encourage you to collaborate with all kinds of complex kids and support them in navigating life and learning. And we'll interview leading experts from around the world, as well as parents in our own community, talking about how training for parents actually helps these complex kids. We'll talk about the issues we hear parents struggling with all the time and how a coach approach can support and empower your amazing young people. We won't tell you what to do. We're going to help you figure out how. So let's move on to the next conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another conversation in the Parenting with Impact podcast. I am here today with a funny twist on, on guests on our in our community, the mental health comedian, Frank King. Welcome, Frank. It's great to have you here. Nice to be here. And, you know, there are many ways that I would usually start this conversation by asking you, um, how did you get into be doing this work, which I suspect we'll cover. But what I really want to ask you is what's so funny about mental health? Oh, well, not jokes. Uh, Mental health, mental illness, depression, thoughts, suicide, not really a joking topic. However, as with most things, even dark things, there is organic humor. When I keynote, I don't tell jokes about depression, thoughts, suicide, something I live with every day. I tell funny anecdotes. For example, when I say to the audience um, in 2010, I came close enough to killing myself. I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. Gets a nervous laugh. And I say, a friend of mine came up after a keynote recently and he goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, can you try to sound slightly less disappointed? <laughs> so it's when I did my first TED Talk, mm-hmm. I said to the audience, you know, I did some research. I went to TED.com to see how other people had handled the topic of suicide. Figuring out of the hundreds of thousands of talks, there'd be three, four, five dozen talks on. No, three talks, three wow. Then it hit me. Well, duh, if you're really good at suicide, you're probably not going to be recording a TED talk. Right. Yeah. So that's where the, you know, that's where the humor is in uh, the topic. So how did you come to be doing this work? Like what brings you here or brought you here? Well, I told my first joke in fourth grade, nine years old. Kids laughed. Teacher was hysterical. Decided I was going to be a stand-up comedian. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Twelfth grade, did the talent show. Then I won. Of course, competition wasn't that stiff. You know, accordion player, folk dancers. Told my mama, I'm going to be a comedian. I'm going to L.A. She goes, honey, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care. You're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees, then headed for the West Coast. San Diego, which has a branch of the comedy store to this day. Same place, same place. And I did my first five minutes on stage on April 1st, 84, April Fool's Day. Halfway through my five minutes, I heard a voice inside my head. You're home. Aww. Yep. And then decided at that moment, I'm going to do it for a living. Had no idea how. 18 months later, said to my girlfriend, now my wife, for 35 years, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian. Do you want to come along? Thinking she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So we gave up our apartment, our jobs, put everything we could fit into a tiny little Dodge Colt and hit the road, and we were on the road together 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, seven years and change. Wow. 
worked with Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Ellen, Rosie, Adam Sandler, Kevin James, Steve Harvey, pretty much anybody who's anybody, uh, Foxworthy, Ron White, Bill Engbaugh, and then did some radio, and then got into corporate comedy, which is after dinner, after lunch at conventions. Okay. Somebody, every now and then somebody asked me, what's the difference between, between a club comic and a corporate comic? That's easy. $5,000 a day plus travel. I was going to say the, the number is zeros. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I'm no math major, but that made sense. Well, mm-hmm. then the session hit 07, 08, 09. And conferences, conventions, bookings dropped off 80% practically overnight. Lost everything in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy that we worked for in 25 years. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Mm-hmm. When conventions came back, the media planner said to me, Frank, we love you. We can't pay that kind of money anymore just to be funny. You've got to teach the audience something. Uh, what in the heck am I going to teach the audience? Well, a friend of mine named Judy Carter wrote a book called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. So I went into it thinking I got nothing. Halfway through, I thought, oh, Lord, I do have something to talk about. Yeah. Depression, suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. There are more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. And I have two mental illnesses and I have a close brush with suicide. So I thought if I got some training, I could keynote on suicide prevention. Okay. So I got the training. Second hurdle, been a comedian two and a half decades. How do you convince people you can do something serious? Do a TEDx. Got it. So I did a TEDx on suicide prevention. And then another two TEDx events invited me to come and be a part of their event if I had a different, you know, mental health, but a different aspect, which I did. Those are my first three. I've done five more since then including my eighth one I just did virtually uh, the state of Assam in India. Wow. Uh, the next event reached out to me. They found me on LinkedIn. I got a relatively large presence on LinkedIn. They found me and said, hey, we like your take on mental health. Would you do a TEDx? Absolutely. So that's how I got from comedy, a funny speaker, to speaker who is funny. Mm-hmm. So – a lot of different directions that we could go because I hear depression, suicide running your family, which is pretty common in a lot of people in our community. And then you got some training. Tell us a little bit about the training. Uh, first one was called Working Minds, Workplace mm-hmm. Health and Suicide Prevention as a Workplace Health and Safety Issue. And that's what I keynote on, Workplace Health and Safety Issue. And I selected six of the top 10 at-risk occupations for suicide because they have a serious problem, pain point I can address. Mm-hmm. That's my marketing, just to those six groups, uh, construction, agriculture, uh, attorneys, dentists, veterinarians, such. I'll have a Wait, high rate. Of- say it again slowly. Uh, construction. construction. Uh, okay. uh, veterinarians, physicians, attorneys, and can't remember who's it. Agriculture, you said. Agriculture, farmers. What's that? Farmers. Farmers. Yep, wow. farmers have a really high rate of suicide. So I chose those as my to market to. I'm a, I'm a big believer when you're marketing something, don't spray and pray. Select yeah. your ideal clients, people that really need to hear what you have to say. So, and by the way, since this is a parenting podcast, yes, uh, the reason I am a comedian, the reason I am who I am and what I am today, uh, my mom, at four years old, I said to her, can I be a police officer? And my mother said, honey, you can do anything you put your mind to. Mm-hmm. And that was the theme when we were growing up. You could do anything you put your mind to. Of course, I flipped the script on her as a four-year-old, and I said, could I grow hair on my chest? She goes, well, you know, with lots of effort in due time. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> I nailed her. Could you? Well, I guess if I put my mind to it, I, maybe I could. Uh... <laughs> and, and I didn't know until years later that everybody's parents 
didn't instill in them the idea that you could do anything you put your mind to. My, my first wife, and she's a wonderful woman, just her idea of what I should do for a living was not my idea. Right. Uh, I said, I'm going to do comedy. And she goes, you need to do that. You wanted to do it since the fourth grade. We, we let's get separated and divorced. She goes, what makes you think you can make a living doing stand-up comedy? And I said to her, my mama told me I could do anything I put my mind to. And my mm-hmm. ex-wife actually said out loud, I hate she told you that. <laughs> yeah, so and that would explain why she's your ex-wife? Yes. Well, <laughs> you know, we, we were, I was an insurance man when we married. Mm-hmm and became a comedian, kind of a matrimonial bait and switch. Really wasn't her fault. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand she, that was not what she wanted, you know, the, the, you know, work full time, get pregnant, have a couple of kids, go back to work part time when the kids in first grade, you know, they're basically the middle-class track you run on. Right. And she ended up marrying a guy and had a couple of kids. I'm I'm thrilled that she got what she wanted. Um, But my mom, my dad died when I was eight, he was 40. And so my mom raises and, and I've discovered since then that there are worse things than having one really good parent. Mm. I've known people who had two parents and it was just a sleigh ride through hell. Right. However, yeah, but one, we often say in our world, it only takes one parent to turn the tide. Yes. And she did a great job. And interestingly enough, both of my parents were gay. Really? Mom was gay. My dad was gay. Yeah. They met in the late thirties in high school in the, after the second world war, they, they both wanted a family. So they got married. They were going to adopt, but there were no infants available. So they decided to do it the old fashioned way. All right. Yes. Uh, and my mom. You mean with the turkey baster? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Shortly after Thanksgiving. Uh, and so when my dad passed away, my mom gave state boards to nurses. That was her job. She went to work full time. And many of her friends were nurses. And most all of them were gay. Yeah. So I have a keynote called everything I need to know. I learned from a lesbian because I learned how to hunt and fish and change a tire and cut up my steak and, <laughs> and all from lesbians, strong Southern women. Yeah. You'd have a great time at my dinner table. <laughs> well, they say it takes a village to raise a child. Now give me a couple of shifts of good nurses. We'll get the job done. I bet. So anyway, that's on parenting. And, and my mother had a, an expression but I think it's brilliant. And I've only heard it a couple of times from other parents. I would say to her after I did something stupid, do you still love me? Then she'd say, oh, honey, I'll always love you. I don't like you much right now. Yeah. Which is brilliant, I think, because there's a base of love. Yeah. But, you know, I don't like you much right now. <laughs> well, and this is the mom who said when you said you wanted to be a comedian, she's the one that said, sure. After you finish college. Right? After, you know, yeah. You can be a goat herder with a college degree. Yeah. No, uh, her family, especially even the women, uh, women going generate back generations, all educated. And um, it was just assumed we were going to college. It was not, uh, you know, if no. So did you struggle with with any of the, de- the depression when you were a kid or did that surface as an adult with life circumstances? I, an adult. I had a relatively good childhood, you know, like I said, one good parent plus, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a baseball team, baseball, sorry, she has a softball team for the lesbians. And the, I got a little depressed in college because my girlfriend that became my first wife went to another school across the country. So I figured I was just, you know, heartsick, lonesome. Yeah. I probably was depression at the time, but didn't recognize it. And lifted shortly after I decided to, to you know, pursue stand-up comedy. My first suicidal thought was January of 84, driving down Highway 84. That's the year you started in comedy. Yes. One of my TEDx talks is called Suicide, The Secret of My Success. 
dead man talking. Whew. I have something called chronic suicidal ideation. Say that again. A little chronic slower. suicidal ideation. It means for those of us in my tribe that the option of suicide always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. I say to the audience, when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts. Get it fixed. Buy a new one. Or I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. So I hadn't had any suicidal thoughts until January of 84. I'm driving down 163, Highway 163 in San Diego, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And miserable because although my wife, a lovely woman, we didn't belong together. Mm-hmm. We had nothing in common. Uh, but, you know, opposites the track. She was pregnant. I wasn't. <laughs> um, the uh, selling insurance for her father's company, which I hated with a purple passion. Insurance is a great business, but it just wasn't for me. What? And not pursuing comedy. And I realized that if I didn't change something and fast, I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later. My second thought was very empowering. Wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. Still kill myself, right. Yeah, that's how I got into comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, that's nothing. how my husband got into coaching. So I, <laughs> I see. Well, you know, and there are, there are a few things on the planet more powerful than somebody with absolutely nothing to lose. Yeah. TEDx starts like this. What would you attempt if you knew for a fact? What audacious thing would you attempt if you knew for a fact you had nothing to lose? Yeah. What goal would you pursue if you knew by not pursuing it and staying standing still, staying where you are, you would literally die? That's where I was in January of 1984. And that's how I got into comedy. Uh, and fortunately, they laughed. So that's the comedy piece. So so you said, so, so this thread of suicide and depression has always been in your comedy. You just learned how to teach something with it when you came no, back later. Actually, the, there was no mention of depression and suicide in any of my stand-up, n- none to this day. Mm. Uh, until I, yeah, I didn't start talking about it until I did that first TEDx in 2014 and put the keynote and that TEDx became, you know, I took an 18 minute keynote and blew it up to, I'm sorry, 18 minute TED and blew it up to 45 minute keynote. Right. And became the mental, not just a comedian, but the mental health comedian, which, you know, it's A, they're great keywords. Uh, B, they're kind of an odd combination. And then that's the elephant in the room when I speak. Yeah. And I tell them, look, you're probably wondering. And then I tell them my family history, my history, uh, and so forth. And, and oftentimes the humor piece will get me the job over the other speakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine because they're looking for, for the entertainment quality to it. Yeah, they um, call it comic relief for a reason. What strikes me when I think about the people who are listening to this podcast right now, many of us are parents of kids who suffer from depression, whether they're young kids or teenagers or young adults. And I mean, I started dealing with with family members with depression and suicidal ideation from a super early age. It was a, it was really scary to hear a six-year-old kid talking about why do I deserve to, I don't deserve to live. And, and I don't talk about that a lot actually, because it's, it is scary. So what do you think, given this trajectory you've been on for the last, you know, 20 years, 10 years, depending on which framework you're looking at. Yeah, that's right. Which career, which career, What's important for parents who are raising kids with these issues to understand that may be hard for them to to hear from somebody who's not a mental health comedian? One, you hear this. Why would he want to kill himself? He had everything to live for. Mm. I believe in the majority of cases, the person who dies by suicide did not want to kill themselves. 
They simply wanted to end the pain. I didn't want to kill myself. I just yeah. wanted to end the pain. Yeah. Two, suicidality has like a three-legged stool. Leg one is you've decided you can end your life. Leg two is you tend to distance yourself, either physically or socially. And leg three is something called burdensomeness. Say it again. Burdensomeness. Burdensomeness. Yes. Okay. You hear people say this, that suicide is a selfish act. Well, from the outside looking in, it is. It wasn't, weren't they thinking about the people they're going to leave behind? Ironically, with burdensomeness, they are thinking very much about the people they're going to leave behind. And they believe, I believed, that the world would be better off without me. I knew my wife would be better off financially because I had a million-dollar life insurance policy and we just filed bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a selfless act. I was going to restore her financially by killing myself. Mm. It's an irrational act, but it is, they are oftentimes thinking about, so if I were a parent and I had a child who was struggling with depression, perhaps thoughts of suicide, rather than say what neurotypical people generally say, you've got so much to live for. I would say to my child, just every now and then, out of the blue, apropos of nothing, as my mother would say, honey, I know that probably occasionally the thought crosses your mind that we would not be better off without you in any situation. Just reassure them, you know, you need to join the conversation in the person's mind. And that's what they're thinking. So I, I'm with you and I'm this is I'm going to play a little devil's advocate because I, I know that this is what parents ask me all the time, which is, but am I putting thoughts into their head? Uh, no, that's an urban legend that you should never mention the word suicide in front, in front of somebody who's depressed. I love the reasoning as a comedian because it would give them the idea. Suicide. What a great idea. Never I thought of that. Yeah. Like it didn't cross my mind. Right. Again, ironically, it, mentioning suicide in front of somebody who is depressed, perhaps suicidal, actually lowers the risk that they will do it because it's now out in the open. You're beginning to destigmatize those thoughts. So, yeah, that's that's the protocol. If you think somebody's depressed, and there are ways to tell, you know, have trouble getting up in the morning, but rally in the afternoon. Um, eat too much, can't eat. Sleep too much, can't sleep. Let their personal hygiene go. You know, usually the young person is pretty well put together. But hair's a little dirty, clothes aren't quite so clean. It may be because they're struggling to get out of bed in the morning, run a load of wash, and take a shower. Or it may be because they're a teenager. So not every teenager yeah. <laughs> just, you know, putting that out there and it's fair. Yes. You have yeah. to have, well, we need a baseline of what their personal hygiene was like before they got depressed. Right. Yeah. And, and people ask, what do you say to somebody who is depressed or you think they're depressed? Well, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? <laughs> I know. You should I try gluten-free diet. That really helps. Oh, God. Yes. I've got this blue algae. Yeah. The what you should say is, look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not lazy or crazy or self-absorbed. I know that the depression is a mental illness. Good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. We'll help you get the treatment. Now, here's the tough part. You have to ask them in no uncertain terms. Are you having thoughts of suicide? Just mm. like that. And I tell the audience, look, if you can't do that yourself, find somebody you can. If you can't find anybody and then I put my phone number on, I sell number on the screen. Call me and I'll ask them. It's a difficult question. Uh, now, let's say they're not forthcoming. You suspect they're circling the drain, but they don't admit they're having thoughts of suicide. How would you know? Well, they talk about death and dying. You catch them Googling death and dying or how to kill yourself. Death and dying appears as a theme in their music or their artwork or their writing. They're getting their affairs in order. 
especially if they're giving away prized possessions mm-hmm. because they want to make sure the prized possessions go to the person they want them to go to when they're gone. They're gathering the means to die by suicide, purchasing a firearm or stockpiling medication. Here's a counterintuitive one, very dangerous. They've been depressed for a long time. Now they're happy beyond measure for no apparent reason. Mm. Well, the problem is they may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method. This is going to sound very familiar here. And they know the pain is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Okay, but let's say they admit they're depressed and they admit they're having thoughts of suicide. What do you say? Do you have a plan? If they have a plan, what is your plan? And if it's detailed, time, place, and method, need to get them to a mental health facility for simply for evaluation. Find out what's going on, perhaps medication. Now, and this is not in any textbook. It's not in any class I've ever taken. I came up, I came up with this with a friend of mine who also has chronic suicidal ideation. What if they got a plan, but it's not really detailed, not very specific? Mm-hmm. What in the world would you say? Well, I would say, all right, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then I would say, okay, tell me why not. Mm. Make them give voice to whatever's keeping them here, because something is, otherwise you wouldn't be having that conversation. Could be parents, could be kids, could be pets, could be religion. Whatever it is, you can leverage that to help keep them around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember very distinctly having a similar conversation with my spouse, and it was very clear, and he speaks publicly about it, that it was not being willing to do that to his kids and to me. Yes. Kept him around. Yep. And then having similar conversations with my then teenager, similarly about, so what are your thoughts on creating a plan for how to handle it if they start feeling like they're moving towards it? You know, a lifeline plan, or can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not big on uh, promise me you won't kill yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm not that, that's not my jam. Uh, what I do say is, look, um, if you're planning on doing that, all I ask is that you call 988 the new three-digit suicide prevention lifeline or text 988 mm-hmm. before you do. Because I just, I, I, I couldn't live with myself if I knew I was the last voice you heard. Um, my suggestion is, A, make sure you get them evaluated and have a physical, because sometimes physical ailments present as mental health issues. Mm. And only a third of psychotropic medications on average work well for anybody. Mm-hmm. A third of the people who take a medication love it. A third, eh. And the other third, dear God. Yeah. So there's now a DNA cheek swab test. Take a little DNA like Ancestry, a couple hundred bucks, most insurances cover it. You send it off. And what they do is they try to match your DNA, take your DNA, match it with the, with the let's say, antidepressant that's going to work best with your metabolism. Right. So they narrow it down to a couple of choices. Not perfect, but it, it helps to eliminate the go on, doesn't work, taper off. Go on, doesn't work, taper off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it takes really a while to taper on these meds. Yes. The doctor really only knows what the drug salesman told him. Yeah. So you need to, you know, mine, I, I, I didn't start taking an antidepressant until I was 60. And three weeks later, I'm like, what was I waiting for? <laughs> uh, just, just takes well, what are you waiting for? Well, I've been taking an over-the-counter uh, supplement called SAME, S-A-M-E. Mm-hmm. Really good on mild depression, good for your liver, good for your joints. And it was just enough to get me over the hub at five o'clock, my low point in the day. Mm-hmm. And my wife, because you're 60, for goodness sakes, ask the doctor, see if he can't prescribe something. So I did. And uh, he goes, he goes, why do you need an antidepressant? And I said, because I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And 
man, he couldn't write the script fast enough. Fast enough, right? <laughs> yeah, but what he hadn't been doing, what he's supposed to do is every time you see a physician, they're supposed to ask you two questions. Um, you know, have you distanced yourself socially from whatever? And are you, have you felt hopeless in the last couple of weeks? And if you answer yes to either one of those, there's seven follow-up questions. But, yeah. you know, doctors are so busy, people in the little waiting room, you know, they're on the clock. X amount well, of then we hit COVID where everybody felt hopeless. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, and he prescribed one that doesn't make you gain weight because he knew I was bodybuilding. So, and it worked. Two weeks in, my wife noticed the difference in my demeanor. Didn't say anything, Was didn't want to, you know. And three at three weeks, I had this thought unbidden. I like my life. What the hell? Who is that? Who, yeah, who a, got in your head? Right. Yeah, I have a good life. You know, lovely wife, been married 35 years. As you see, have animals, nice little house. I mean, it's good life, but hadn't had that particular thought since like, I don't know, what, you know, 84. So, and the doctor offered to up it. And I go, no, it's a, it's a minimum dose. It's doing just fine. Just enough to take mm-hmm. the edge off. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not pushing psychotropics. I just think, you know, good, good people, it, it can make a big difference. Sure. Yeah, it can keep you around if, and during the pandemic, I had friends who got depressed, you know, neurotypicals. And I go, look, antidepressants aren't a life sentence. You can you can take them until the, you know, and then taper off. Mm-hmm. I may never take them again. This is this is, you know, this pandemic thing is situational depression, chances are for you. Yeah. Not chronic. Chronic. Exactly. Yep. Well, Frank, it's been a fabulous conversation and we need to start bringing it to a wrap. How can people find out more about about you? Well, I'm living in a country that does not have an extradition treaty and there's really no way to contact me here. Uh, <laughs> Did I mention I'm a comedian? Uh, yes. The um, If you go to the, the web and type in the mental health comedian or just mental health comedian, I'll undoubtedly come up because I've got a, I've worked very hard even as a 66 year old to make sure that I've got good SEO. So mental health comedian, Frank and King. We'll, and we'll have it in the show notes as well. Oh, good. Yeah. Perfect. Excellent. Any other resources? I heard you reference 988. Any, any other re- resources you want to offer to parents or suggest that they pursue? Yes, absolutely. There's something called National Alliance Mental Illness, N-A-M-I, NAMI, or NAMI, depending on who, you know, your preferred pronunciation, National Association. NAMI, got it. Yep. yep. N- That's on our website, and we'll also put it in the show notes, everybody. In almost every large county. And I've got a friend who has a child, now an adult, with schizoaffective disorder, and it was d- destroying the marriage and the family. Yeah. And another friend said, go to NAMI because they have a 12 week course for parents and others who have a person in their family with a particular mental health issue. You learn what to say and not say, what to do and not to do, how to find resources. And they have family to family counseling for families that have a child, let's say, with schizoaffective disorder. And here's the best part. Everything that NAMI does is free. Beautiful. Yep. Beautiful. And then you said something about 988, which is, I believe, the new uh, three digit suicide prevention lifeline, also text line. They discovered younger people are more forthcoming in text. So they have somebody manning the text line to be roughly the same age as the young person who is in crisis. Super, super. All right. If you're with somebody who's in crisis and they won't pick up the phone and dial 988, you dial 988. And hopefully the volunteer will help you talk the phone into the person's hand who is. And by the way, if they're a danger to themselves, I mean, immediate danger to themselves or others, you have to call 911 and get the cops involved. Now, I understand if the cops come and they think they're actively suicidal, they'll bring them in front of a judge and probably get a three-day involuntary detention order. 
lockdown mm-hmm. 72 hours. So they're probably going to unfringe on Facebook, but they'll be alive. Yeah. To be angry at you for the rest of their life. Yeah, which is which fine. Is, which is a fair trade-off. Right? Yes. Yeah, so re- yeah, the important part of that sentence is rest of their life. Exactly. So as we wrap this up, is there anything else you want to either share with our listeners that you haven't talked about or something you want to kind of bring back to, to highlight from what you've shared? Yes. Now, I've given you the signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide. Mm-hmm. What to say and what not say and so forth. Here's the good news. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. Can't make up their mind. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt, which means the vast majority of people want to be saved. The vast majority of people can be saved. You do not have to be a clinician to stop a suicide, which means for all the folks in the audience, you can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing right here. And that is starting the conversation. Yeah. And that conversation doesn't have to be long and detailed and a lecture. It's no. not this, what I'm hearing is the conversation is as simple as a question. Yes. Are you depressed? Are you having thoughts of suicide? Do you have a plan? Very simple. May, may I finish with a funny story? Please. As somebody who lives with two mental illnesses, every now and then I get tired of responding to the how are you doing question with the typical live in the dream, another day in paradise, especially yeah. if I'm tired. So I've done two three-hour suicide prevention CE programs, crawled in the back of the Uber. Nice young man. Our eyes lock in the rearview mirror. He goes, how are you doing? I thought I'm going to tell him. I said, I'm depressed and suicidal. How about you, dude? He freezes. He goes, what am I supposed to say to that? I said, do you really want to know? He said, yeah. I said, you're supposed to ask if I have a plan. So he thinks about that for a second. And he goes, do you have a plan? And then it hits him. And he turns to the seat and he goes, does it involve Uber? (laughs) Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Beautiful. All right, my friend, this has been lovely. And I am, I want to say I'm super grateful to what you're doing and how you're bringing lightness to a dark conversation. One of the things that I really try to do in my work with parents of complex kids is to keep it in the context of we're living life. And sometimes it's beautiful and sometimes it stinks and it's everything in between. And to, to hold it lightly, even though we're dealing with really heavy subjects. Well, and on that subject, and this is, I've heard this from several parents. um, I did a talk called Mental with Benefits, the Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. Mm -hmm. And the idea was for kids to reframe their mental illness as a a combination of mental illness, mental ableness. Mm -hmm. And I've had several parents go, Frank, I've got a child with whatever it happened to be. I've never heard anybody say anything positive. Idea being you treat the mental illness. But then you wrap your arms around, you energize, you celebrate whatever the mental ableness is. Yes. And perhaps if if it would lend itself to a career like OCD, you know, attention to detail, precision, uh, you know, banking, <laughs> accounting, architecture, graphic design, things where the detail is very important. Why not steer the kid in that direction? Play to the strengths. Yeah, exactly. So that was the so if you have parents who have a child with, you know, a complex kid, my talk. And I think it's, I think you should have at the bottom of my email. It's called uh, mental with benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. It really was designed for kids because I kept meeting parents. And every time I asked about their child, if they had a mental challenge, I go, just out of curiosity, did they do anything really well? Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) And when you play like in the, in the ADHD realm, which is kind of where we started, 
mm-hmm. before we we realize that there are very few kids with ADHD don't, that don't also have anxiety or depression or learning disability, some of these other issues. The real foundational concept that makes a difference is to play to your strengths and to yeah. celebrate the successes instead of that deficit mentality, which is let's look at what's wrong. We want to look at what's right, what's working and, and build on that because that's where the possibility is. Well, the realm of ADHD, by the way, uh, some of the symptoms of ADHD are very similar to the symptoms of childhood trauma. Yeah. So it's often easier just to treat what they believe is ADHD than dig you know, rep- help try to repair the soul. Um, I got one of my classes doing a whole TEDx on repairing the soul. Ooh, wow. You know, get it what's really, you know, and they may have ADHD. It may just be that, but it may be there's some childhood trauma that is causing these symptoms. Sometimes. So. And sometimes the having had untreated ADHD creates a trauma experience. <laughs> I guess so, right. you know, we've had kids who've been diagnosed with PTSD from, you know, terrible school year experiences or bullying experiences or those kinds of things. So you got a final quote or motto you want to leave us with? Yes. Uh, it's a personal, my personal tagline. What's that? Uh, I am often wrong. I am never in doubt. I'm often wrong. But I'm never in doubt. I know many people who would share that <laughs> sentiment. Yeah. I know. I found people who, you know, they, they have just the opposite. You know, the imposter syndrome thing, it's like I didn't even know that was a thing. In my said, family, oh, we call it Klaus positive. So I'm. <laughs> oh. Well, I have what I believe is reverse imposter syndrome. Yes. I thought since I was nine years old that I am fabulous and I'm just waiting for other people to figure that out. So. And that teaches, brings us back to where you started, which is the power of a mother who can believe oh my God. See your possibility. So uh, I love yeah, that. I mean, and it's a beautiful place for us to close. Yep. Frank, thank you for being here. Again, thank you for the work you're doing in the world. It's powerful. It makes a difference. I really, really want to honor the work of of destigmatizing mental health and bringing it into larger public corporate arenas. That's where those messages need to get out on a broad. Well, please put my phone number in the show notes because you know I put it on the screen every time I keynote. So. We will do that. Thank you very much. And to those of you tuning in and listening, I want to really acknowledge you for what you're doing for yourself and for your kids, learning, thinking, gaining insight, being present, asking provocative questions that can invite your kids to be their best selves, sometimes save their life. Know that what you're doing makes a difference. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Behavior therapy training for parents is actually recommended as a first-line treatment for complex kids. For information about Sanity School, our training program for parents or teachers, which has helped thousands of families around the globe, visit impactparents.com slash sanity school. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.